You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestoakville.ca. All right, Luke chapter 18, excited for what God has for us. And as we turn to his word, let me first turn uh, to prayer. God, we do turn, turn to you in prayer because you are everything Uh, We need you so, so much. And as I read this morning, O Lord, in 1 Timothy 1, that Paul says that he was given the glorious gospel entrusted to him, Lord. We have been entrusted with the glorious gospel, which points us to the grace that Paul says that overflowed into his life. It overflowed. It didn't just trickle down. It overflowed. And every single one of us in Christ, that's, that's, that's the same with us. We have received the grace of God to overflowing, and I pray that grace again would pour over us today in a challenging message, but such a needed message from your word on the issue of pride versus humility. So, O God, may the glory of your gospel point to the glory of you. May we be so receptive and ready, I pray, together as a church and as your children. In Jesus' name, if you agree, you can say... Amen. Amen. All right, again, final week here in our series, going through the parables of Luke, but specifically we've been going through the unique parables that are found only in Luke. And let me just recap where we've been throughout the series. So far, it's been story time at many levels. We've heard stories of compassion. We've heard a story of wealth, a story of bearing fruit for Christ, a story of humility. We heard a story of joy, a story of two sons, a story of stewardship, a story of heaven and hell. We heard a story of unceasing prayer, and today we hear a story of pride versus humility. Now, if you just heard that list and you were paying attention, you were like, wait a second, we already did a story on humility. And I would say, you're right, that, that is true. But uh, last time I checked, I didn't write this book, all right? Uh, Jesus did. And so I'm just the messenger, and I'm just going along with what story we have. But you'll say, and I'd say also this, well, this is actually a story of pride versus humility as opposed to humility. But if you remember way back when, that first story on humility, you would say, well, really, that was really a story of pride versus humility as well. And I'd say, okay, you got me, but again, I didn't write the book, all right? So here we are, and, and what we're learning is Jesus wants to repeat certain themes within our lives because he wants to send certain messages that we need to hear, apparently, again and again. Whenever you see repetition in Scripture, stop long enough to say, why does this keep being repeated? Obviously, this is important to the Holy Spirit who wrote the book called the Bible, which is the Word of God. Let me say it in this way why repetition is so important. What we know about life is the principles or the rules that carry the most important get the most airtime. Consider this example. As you drive through a school zone within your neighborhood, consider how many signs let you know that it's a school zone. First, there's a speed limit sign that says 40 kilometers an hour. Then there's a school zone sign that is often there. Then there could be a school crossing sign. Then you will often see a flashing amber light sign that is going on, not to mention crossing guards themselves with their big bright vests and their stop signs letting you know it's a school zone that you're entering into. Then there can be awesome, often, awesome, that there can be often a fines increased sign to let you know where you're there. And wouldn't you know it, as I drove through the school zone close to our house this week, there was a police officer in his car with a radar trying to catch speeders to make sure they know this is a school zone that they are entering into. Into. 
Why all the information? Why all the repetition? Why such an effort to let us know where we are driving on this road towards a school? Here's really the reason those signs are there, because lives are at stake. Because children's lives are at stake. And because we deem that so important, every effort is made to make sure you and I know what we're driving through along this road. When Jesus comes to us again with another story of pride versus humility, the reason Jesus is flashing these signs over and over again on our road to life is because Jesus knows this, that lives are at stake. Jesus knows the lives of his children are at stake. That's how devastating pride is. That's how important humility is. Here's what Proverbs 16, 18 says about The danger of pride. Pride goes before destruction. No thanks. That's what pride does though. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're going to end our passage today where Jesus is going to say the whole point of this parable is if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. You'll be humble. But if you humble yourself, then you will be exalted. So that's why Jesus tells another story of pride versus humility. It's a battle. It's a battle, loved ones. Pride is fighting against humility, and humility is fighting against pride. Let's look at our text and find out who wins this battle. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Here's the contrast. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus summarizes, he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, the intent of this parable becomes pretty clear. Verses 9, or verse 9 and verse 14 become pretty powerful bookends. And in essence, what Jesus is saying here, he says, I'm coming after the proud. I'm coming after the proud. Why? Why? Because I want to save you from destruction. And that includes even some of his children. In the sense of pride will ruin our lives, even though we're saved in Jesus Christ with the opportunity we've been given to bear fruit for him. Jesus says, I'm coming for the proud. Listen, he's coming for the proud this morning. He is. He is. He's coming for the proud of my heart and yours. He's coming for it because he loves us too much not to. He wants to save us from unnecessary pain, heartache, and devastation. This takes us to point number one, which is this. Pride will pontificate, but in the end, it will be poison. Pride will preach, loved ones. It will preach a great game. Pride will pontificate Areas and dogmatic statements of sounding so boastful and so right and so appealing to the heart and mind. It will pontificate, but in the end, it will be found to be poison. As you read this parable, in one sense, it's very easy to follow. There are two men, one's proud, the other's humble. So you can read this, and the simple lesson would be, well, don't be proud. 
That's pretty basic. That's, that's also correct. Don't be proud. That's good. But the danger is missing the mounds of evidence as to why pride is so devastating. And that's what's key for this message today. Many of us say, yeah, yeah, pride is bad, or I shouldn't be proud. But why is pride so bad? If you unpack that and get under the layers of pride, you have to see the devastation as to why pride is so dangerous. Like, I can say I shouldn't smoke, and that would be a good thing to say. I shouldn't smoke. It's bad for me. But why is it bad for me? So when I was in school, I think I remember being in grade five, they showed us pictures of, like, blackened lungs to, to, to show us the reality beyond just don't smoke to the devastation of what happens when you do smoke and what your lungs become. And I specifically remember seeing an interview of this lady who had a hole in her neck that she was breathing through now due to the smoke. And I'm not sure if they're scare tactics, I guess, eh? I guess. But, but listen, it worked. <laughs> like it worked. Like you saw it way beyond I shouldn't smoke as to the reality of the danger and the devastation that comes from when you choose to do so. The same is with pride. Jesus right here in the text, it's not just pride is dumb or don't be proud, but why the danger and the devastation that pride starts to bring into our lives, the more we see the consequences, the more we'll be alert and say, I don't want that in my life. I don't want to be ruined in that way. The poison of pride. This is why it's so sneaky, just like sin and, and so just It sneaks into your soul. But once you start drinking a few drops of pride, it starts to devour you from the inside. It eats away at joy. It eats away at your love for Christ. It eats away at humility. It eats away at all the good that Jesus Christ has given to us. Pride is such a big deal. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, he says this on pride. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's, I want to say it to you. I want you to hear this if you haven't before. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free. So if you're here today and you say, I'm not proud, man. Look out. You're in trouble. Which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. He says, I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. He says, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in of ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. The virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. It's very good insight. And he says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Because Jesus loves us, he warns us. And today he teaches us, don't drink the poison of pride. It will ruin your life. Look at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. 
one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Why? Well, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. So here we have the Pharisee. The obvious example of pride and self-righteousness. But notice the poison that he's drinking. This is what we must be aware of. This is when we get most help. In verse 11, it says, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Now, where in the temple the Pharisee prayed, we are not totally sure. But in contrast with verse 13, where it says the tax collector was far off, almost like in the corner, it seems that the Pharisee placed himself by himself, but in a place where he could be seen by all and, of course, heard by all. He's standing by himself, but drawing attention to himself, because after all, who can compare with this guy? The Pharisee is God's gift to ministry, after all, and he's about to let everyone know, including God, that he is God's gift to ministry, to God himself, because of his fabulous righteousness. Stop here long enough and, and, and see this, that we're able to say this. Within this Pharisee, right away, is the poison of self-glory. The poison of self-glory. Pride always includes glory towards self. And be sure of this as well. Wherever there's self-glory, there will always be, listen, listen, there will always be self-righteousness. Wherever, wherever there's self-glory, there's always, I have done this, and therefore, the righteousness attributed to self. So again, verse 11 says, standing by himself, he prayed. Now, I have a footnote in my Bible, right next to that phrase, that says, or standing, prayed to himself. Now, whether or not this was the Pharisee just saying a private prayer or something beyond that, here's what we do know. One commentator said, outwardly, the Pharisee is addressing God. God, I thank you that, but actually and inwardly, listen to this and notice this, he is praying about himself to himself. That's what he's doing. God, I thank you, just as a cover to sound like the, like the, the cliche of religiosity, but in reality is, he's praying about himself to himself. Within his prayer, he uses the word I five times. Five times. Take a look, verse 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, God, I want you to know I am awesome. But notice inherently why he loves self. Why does he love himself so much? Because he loves his righteousness. He loves his deeds. He loves what he considers to be that which earns him favor with God. But look at verse 9 now. And what do you notice about verse 9 in relation to why Jesus told this parable? This parable was for those, it says in verse 9, who trusted in, tell me, tell me, themselves. You see that? There's the fundamental issue with pride. It's not a trust in Christ. It's a trust in self. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They didn't trust in God that he was righteous. See, that's the whole gospel. Right? The whole gospel is, I trust in you, Christ, in your righteousness. Pride, fundamentally, this is why you drink poison with pride. You trust in yourself that you're righteous. That won't get you anywhere at all at any time. Except other than 
completely apart from the will of God and really the grace of God. And here's where we start to see the devastation of pride and poison. Moves from trusting Christ to trusting self and say, I want you to see, this is what I want you to see for all of us. When we start drinking the cup of pride, within that cup is tremendously dangerous poison. And you start, we start drinking this, this, this pride and we start digesting self-glory, self-righteousness, self-trust, anti-Christ. We start drinking a, a, a formula, a, a solution, a recipe that is fundamentally anti-Christ. You gotta see it that way because then you, then, you, then you hate it and you realize, what am I doing right now? I don't wanna be anti-Christ. I wanna be for Christ. But that's why Jesus tells us these things. That's why he loves us enough to say, why would I ever wanna trust in self? But this is how deceptive pride is. What do I have in it of myself that I can boast of? The answer is nothing. Theologically, the answer is zero. There's nothing in me or you in and of ourselves that can boast of any good. Nothing. Zero. But pride convinces us that there is. If I pray, if I do good deeds, if I read my Bible in a certain way, if I'm more holy than people around me, then all of a sudden I am special and I have done something. And then I've just started to drink the poison that will eat me out. From the inside out. There's nothing we can boast of. Think of a light bulb. A light, a light bulb cannot boast of its light. It cannot boast of its electricity flowing through it. It's just there to convey the light. That's us as children of God. We're just here to convey the light. We're just a jar of clay. We're just a shell. Think of how quickly a light bulb is broken. I saw one break yesterday into a hundred pieces. Totally by accident. It was shattered. It's nothing. Replace it. Put another one in. See a light bulb. That's the way it goes. A light bulb cannot boast of anything. It's just this feeble, fragile shell, but conveys a beautiful light. The gospel so clearly teaches us that any and all of our righteousness is 100% found in Jesus Christ. Any and all, 100% found in Jesus Christ. So if that's our reality, why do we boast of something that we did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive from the Lord? What do you and I have that we did not receive from the Lord? The answer is any, any good. The answer is nothing. There's no good we have, any grace we have that we did not receive from the Lord. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you boast as somehow you came up with this? Why do we boast? See, see, this is why pride is theological stupidity. Because it begins to take credit for something that we have no business taking credit for. And that's why Jesus says, watch out for pride, watch out for pride. You've got to believe in humility. Because you can't stand up and start saying prayers about yourself when in reality anything you have is by the grace of God. But pride is so enticing, isn't it? It looks like such a great drink. It seemingly tastes so good. And even once we consume it, we're like, oh, that feels good initially. It feels, tastes good. It just seems right initially. But then just give it enough time and it starts its devastation. Because look closely at verse 9 again. This parable for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, notice the result, and they treated others with contempt. So here's more to the poison of pride. The poison of pride is the love of self, which results in the hatred for others. It doesn't just say, I love me. Pride says, I love me, and then inevitably it turns to, and I hate others. I consider myself more righteous than others, and therefore I treat them with contempt. Think of envy. Envy 
at its root, like all sin, is pride. Envy quickly moves towards hatred of the other person. I'm jealous of you. I want what you have. I want to be better than you. Envy is really rooted in competitive nature. It's, you just want to be better than the person. I want to be better than you. You are seemingly better than me. I hate you because of that. What is that? That's pride. That's just fatal pride, which eats away at our soul and brings us misery and grumpiness and unforgiveness and, and just pain. So what does pride do? It inflates our view of self and deflates our view of others. In pride, we become kings and queens and everyone else become paupers around our throne. We would maybe never say it that way, but that's the way we like to think about it. Notice that pride doesn't focus on my sins, but it focuses on the sins of others. And when I think I'm better than others, then I treat them. I treat them so, so poorly. That, that truth right there could have saved tens of thousands of marriages. To understand the fact that when I am proud, I consider myself more righteous than my spouse. And so then in my pride, I treat them with contempt because after all, it's their fault. They're to blame. It's not my sin. It's your sin. So pride says it's all you, not me. So if all I'm doing is focusing on my righteousness and your sin, there's no way that's going to go well. Ever. There's no marriage that can last under this theological craziness of I'm perfect, you're not, you're to blame. And the other person's doing the same thing. I'm the one who's blamed this, you're the one who's at fault, and they just fight and fight. Pride, 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 devastation. It is that simple in many regards. You can't win if it's always about you and never your sin. You just can't win, ever, ever. The moment we humble ourselves before the Lord is the moment we start to see the grace of God flow into our lives and our trust in him. You know, often in life, Things like physical trials of pain are devastating, but more devastating in our lives are the trials of relational pain. And relational pain is almost always, always the result of pride within the relationships. Think of the husband who will not admit that he's wrong. And because in his pride he will not admit that he's wrong, he ruins his home. Men, understand this. Losing your temper is not the real problem. We're all going to make mistakes, man. We're all going to have bad days. We're all going to do things that as soon as we do it, we regret and wish we didn't. So we're all going to sin. We're all going to make mistakes. But the real problem is when you're too proud to turn around when you know you've sinned and you've wronged and to admit your failure. Men have ruined their homes because in their sin, they're too stubborn, obstinate, and proud to turn around and just admit what they know is reality within their hearts because of pride. They won't give in. Think of how many men will stand before the Lord in judgment and their lives and homes are ruined because they wouldn't admit they're wrong. No, Lord. No, that's so dumb. That's craziness. Because I want to hold my reputation in a place that only I think is there and everyone else knows is completely disintegrated anyways, I cannot turn around and admit my fault and my sin that healing and grace may be found in my life. Really? Really? That's how poisonous pride is. It makes us so dumb. Think of the woman 
or the wife who will not forgive and therefore ruins her marriage. Wise in this place, resentment is not the greatest problem. It's what you do with that resentment. What boggles my mind in my own heart at times when it's the refusal to forgive of the very sins that Christ has forgiven you of. That's such hypocrisy. How can a wife hold on to a resentment? Well, you don't know my life. You don't know. You're, I don't know your life, and I don't know what's happened with your husband or whatever. But here's what I do know: you have sinned, and Christ has forgiven you for the exact same sins that you will hold against your husband and not forgive. Why? Pride. And therefore, lives get ruined. Because of our unwillingness to demonstrate grace in light of the grace that we've received in Jesus Christ. Think of the leader who must be in control and ruins the church. Why? Because of pride. Now, strong, conviction-filled leadership is not the problem. It's when everything has to revolve around the leader or the pastor, that's when it's the problem. And that's a result of pride. It's the woman who is consumed with envy of another and ruins the friendship. Pride. It's the individual who feeds on criticism, complaining of others, and ruins their ministry. Make sure you know this, man. The, the heart of criticism, the greatest person you're hating, hurting as you criticize is yourself. And please make sure. It's amazing the criticism that comes within the, within the church. How many churches have been brought down by critical spirits. And I don't like that idea. And I don't like what's going on. Well, the reason fundamentally you probably don't like that idea is because it wasn't yours. And so therefore, because I'm not in control and I'm not in the spotlight, I attack because I want it to be about me. Pride. It's poison for the soul. But it pontificates, doesn't it? Pride pontificates. It preaches such a good sermon. We feel so justified and right, and we're standing up for what is right and justice. But in reality, poison starts to seep into our lives a little bit at our time, and it hollows us and eats us out from the inside. What starts with a few drops becomes a glass, then a pitcher, then a fire hydrant into our lives. Make sure you see the poison of pride. Now, most of us, in those examples I use, we would never speak this way, hopefully, but all of us, all of us will think this way. All of us will think this way. And the thoughts we think, if we give in to them, are just as devastating as the actions of pride. As we drink the poison, we position ourselves above others, and then we begin to judge. I mean, look at verse 11. In verse 11, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Wow. God, I thank you I'm not like other men you know we can look at the pharisee in this can't we and we're like man, pharisee what an arrogant prayer wow he's so full of himself standing up and there he is boasting about this and that man i'm so glad i'm never like him <laughs> but don't we do that can you can you pause long enough in your own spirit and soul and just recognize do you ever sit back and deem yourself special? Do you ever sit back and deem yourself more gifted than other people? How come I'm not getting my turn? Do you ever sit back and have the thoughts that you're more holy than other people? I pray better than that person. I know my Bible better than that person. I come to church on time. 
I'm more knowledgeable than the other person. Do you ever subtly hear the voices in your head that says, I think I'm just more important than you. And you would never say that, smile on your face, and just kind of go on. But in reality, these thoughts go through our heads and our minds and our hearts. If we don't check those, we're going down. We're going down. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, I'm not like the unjust or the adulterers, or even like this tax collector, he says. Notice what happens right there. The poison of pride leads to the poison of self-deception. The poison of self-deception. Here's what's so awful in this verse. The Pharisee is boasting, I'm great, the tax collector stinks, but the spiritual reality is, who's the one who stinks? The Pharisee's the one who stinks. The tax collector's in the place of the grace of God. But in his boasting of being so amazing, he's actually way worse than the person he's condemning. What does pride do? Pride blinds us to our blindness. You have to sit, search me, search my heart. God, I can't see it. Show me the sin within. Because in my pride, I'm blind to the reality that I'm actually blind. The Pharisees go, I thank you, I'm not like. And God's like, time out, man. You got it backwards, dude. You need to be like the guy that you're condemning in your very prayer. But how often we walk around thinking we're above others, and in reality, we want to be the center of attention. Oswald Chambers, he told the story, the valet, the servant of an emperor said, I cannot deny that my master was vain. He had to be the central figure in everything. If he went to a christening, he wanted to be the baby. If he went to a wedding, he wanted to be the bride. And if he went to a funeral, he wanted to be the corpse. There's people like that, and in some ways we're all like that. We just want to be the center of it all, and that's the poison we begin to drink. So let's just recap the devastating nature of the poison of pride in these like two verses that Jesus is showing us here. Notice this, first of all, the poison of pride includes self-glory. I'm just going to recap these for us. The poison of pride includes this. It includes self-righteousness. So where there's self-glory, I want it to be about me, there's self-righteousness. The poison of pride includes self-love and hatred for others. So here's why this is so devastating. I start drinking some drops of self-glory, self-righteousness, then self-love. Automatically, when I love self, I begin to despise others. I treat others with contempt. This also happens. The poison of spiritual blindness, probably the worst part, because I can't see the reality that I'm blind. I'm so consumed with the poison of pride So self-glory, self-righteousness, self-love, spiritual blindness. I mean, this is the end result now right here then. Don't drink the poison, loved ones. Don't drink the poison. Now, is that an accurate statement of the gospel right here? Don't drink the poison. I suggest to you it is not. That statement is right in one sense. Don't drink the poison. But how is that possible? Because we can't help but drinking the poison. That's our nature. We're proud men and women. It's impossible not to, again, today I'm not going to drink the poison. And then we have a thought, oh, I drink the poison. And so how can I not drink the poison? Only way I cannot drink the poison is through the antidote of the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of grace. It's the grace of God which becomes the antidote to the poison of pride within our lives. Because if you're like me at this point in the message and you have all this conviction running through your heart, you're like, oh man, I'm pretty discouraged right now. 
Like, I, I, I'm not doing so great in these areas of pride versus humility. But that's why we need the gospel. That's the whole reason there's verse 13. That's the whole reason there's point number two, which is this. Humility will hurt, but in the end it will heal. See, pride pontificates and leads to poison. But that's why we need humility through the grace of God, which will hurt. Yes, it will hurt. But in the end, it will heal. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I love about this text, and you see in God's word, as I love, you can, you can by the grace of God, you can start out as the Pharisee in this message and end up as the tax collector at the end. It's awesome. I saw it a whole bunch last night. People starting off as the Pharisee, and by the grace of God and the love of God, they end up as the tax collector. Meaning when you really see your sin for what it is, you run towards the antidote of grace and the love of Christ. So notice this right away. The Pharisee was oblivious to the gospel, but the tax collector is living the gospel. The Pharisee is boasting himself. The tax collector was beating his breast. The Pharisee is relying on self-righteousness. The tax collector is relying on God's righteousness. I mean, what a contrast, what a lesson for life. How do I know if I'm getting the gospel? How do I know if humility is starting to flood into my life? Well, notice what we learn from the tax collector as the example from Christ himself. Notice this, the tax collector considered himself unworthy. If I'm getting the gospel, if humility is flooding into my life, I will consider myself unworthy. The gospel in two questions can be this, or at least the application is, what do I deserve by myself? Death, wrath, hell. What do I deserve? And then, here's the other question, what have I received in the gospel? Eternal life, joy, peace, the hope of glory. Again, everlasting life in Christ. What do I deserve? Death and wrath. What have I received? Forgiveness. Inheritance of Jesus Christ. The tax collector takes a position of humility. He considers himself unworthy. He stands far off. The Pharisee, look at me. And there's the tax collector. He's just, he's not even worthy, which is so beautiful and so right. I know humility is taking effect in my life if I'm taking that posture. And we see this also. We see his lowliness his posture of humility it says he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven loved ones that's a beautiful place to be i hope you know it he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven why it's not false humility he's not he's not putting on a show here it's real he's so broken the greatest pictures of grace in scripture by far are pictures of brokenness every single time every single time It's the sinful woman before Jesus Christ, devastated in sin, weeping over the love of God. Peter in the boat, devastated, depart from you of sinful men when fish come in because of the holiness of God in Jesus Christ. The same thing right here with the tax collector. I'm not worthy. I lower myself. And here's how I know when the gospel's taking root in my life. I beg for mercy. He says he beat his breast. Beat his breast was not just a one. It was a continual like, oh, have mercy. He's so devastated with the sin that was within him. He beat his breast continually. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see how it hurts? But do you see how it heals? Do you see the antidote of grace? 
the tax collector, broken before the Lord Jesus Christ, begging for the mercy of God. I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the greatest gifts that God has given to me in my ministry is consistent doses of humiliation. And I absolutely mean that with all that's within me. God has graced me and gifted me with consistent doses of humiliation enough to crush me. Now, why does he do that? Because he loves me. Because left to myself, I'm dead. I'm absolutely dead. But because he loves me, he humbles me. He humiliates me at times to show me who this is really about. And the amazing part of this is, this is only God can, when I'm most crushed, is when I feel most loved. That's the gospel too. When I'm most broken is when I feel most surrounded and enveloped by the love of my God who cares for me and loves me. And if God didn't crush me, I'd be dead. Listen, you're no different. There's not one person in this room who's any different. If you can't remember the last time you've been crushed, man, you gotta beg that you would be. Because if you're not getting crushed in the gospel, you are moving away from the power of God's spirit and blessing within your life. When I'm tempted to be the Pharisee, the Lord crushes me in love and he moves me towards the task collector and there I am figuratively and at times literally curled up in a spiritual ball of humiliation crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm telling you, it hurts so much, but it heals. It hurts so much, but it hurts what? It hurts my pride. But then it heals. It heals the soul within. God is so gracious and so merciful. And notice the tax, I love this. Notice the tax collector here. He's not aware of the sin of others. Do you notice that? He probably doesn't even know the Pharisees even there. Why? He's so broken in his own sin. He has no time to say it's your fault and it's your fault and your sin. He's just so devastated himself. He's like, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, when humility's working. You're not thinking about the sin of the person beside you. You're thinking of the sin that has grieved the heart of God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Notice this too. Humility doesn't compare. It confesses. He's not comparing himself to anyone. There's no time for that. Life's too short. I want to get right with God. Our path is no different. If you want humility, then you want God's blessing and you want God's healing. You know, in recent weeks, and I'm not making this stuff, in recent weeks, I've resonated deeply with Romans 7. When Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's the answer, Jesus will. Jesus has delivered me and will deliver me from this body of death. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. God be praised for sure. That's the gospel, that's the gospel. That's the path again to humility and brokenness and grace before him. You see, salvation begins with the gospel, but listen, loved ones, hear this. Salvation continues in the gospel. And all of us here today are being called to continue in the grace of God through the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ to understand apart from him, you can do nothing. And we apart from Christ are wretched men and women, but Jesus delivers us from this body of death. And there are many times in the Christian life we have to go through processes and seasons of renewal, of renewal and the brokenness of our sin and the reality that God has forgiven us and wants us to be restored to him in the power and the love that he would have for our lives. So it's pride that devastates me and us, but it's grace that delights us. Ruined in our sin, but revived 
and the grace of God. What do you do? You take your sin and you confess it. Be broken in it. For so many people, for so many believers, it's, it's will I ever give up? Will I ever actually surrender? What will it take to get to the point where I stop controlling my life? And will I give to God the areas and the part of my character, my sin, that needs to be forgiven in Jesus Christ? What will it take for me to do this? See, pride is poison. Humility is healing. And therefore, point number three, and briefly, is this. So therefore, we do the humbling, and God does the exalting. Because pride is poison, and because humility is healing, we do the humbling, and therefore God does the exalting. Now, your only other option is this. You could do this also. You can do the exalting, but then God promises to do the humbling. I choose option one, okay? We can do the humbling, and God will do the exalting. Or, if you want, it's up to you. You can do the exalting, but God promises that he will do the humbling. Verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the spiritual principle that cannot be avoided by anyone, anytime, anywhere. Notice again, verse 14. For everyone. Last time I checked, everyone meant everyone. For everyone who exalts himself, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled in some form and in some way. The Pharisee, would he be humbled that day? We don't know. Would he be humbled that week or would he be humbled at death? If you wait to death to be humbled, it's too late, apart from Christ. Many, many millions and millions of people, their ultimate humiliation will be at death when they, when they understand for the first time Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will bow on their knee and they will confess with their tongue that he is Lord. But unless they've received Jesus Christ by grace in this life, they will not be saved. And they will experience the humbling of exalting yourself against God and you will find out who really is king and who really is Lord. Our opportunity today is to humble ourselves that God might do the exalting. The tax collector humbled himself. The text says he was justified. He went to his home justified. He was innocent because he was a sinner who knew he needed a savior. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to ask you just to be still. And I mean, the Lord has led us to this point in the service. The worship team, you can come forward. But what I'm going to ask of you today, and I think in some ways this is bold, but if God is at work in your heart in the areas that have been discussed today, I'm going to invite you to come forward to the front of the church to be prayed for. To tell, we're going to have pastors and elders and leaders up here. And I'm going to ask you to come forward as this song, this final song, and even before that, to come forward in humility and to ask the Lord, just would you pray for me? Here's my name. Here's what I want you to pray. It was amazing in the previous service. The people who came forward, and it's, as they confessed the sin of pride, as they, as they just released and acknowledged the sin that was within them, it's just amazing the, the power that breaks, the release 
the brokenness, it's just, it's just as soon as they name the sin, it's like, it's, like, it's like the tears start to flow because that's what the Lord blesses. He blesses the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And for some, this is going to be like a, it's going to take courage. But trusting that God's going to bless you as you trust in him and not yourself, 